The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about the markets. I'll be speaking today with Chris Davis, Chairman of Davis, Davis Select Advisors and a Portfolio Manager at the firm, and Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison. It's Fed Week, the FOMC meets, and Wall Street is betting that the central bank will lift the federal funds rate by another 75 basis points or three-fourths of a percentage point in its battle against inflation. So we'll start with the Fed this week. Welcome, Chris. Welcome, Ben. Glad to have you on Barron's Live. Thanks, Lauren. It's great to be here. Chris, I think you were my very first outside guest on Barron's Live when we lost when we launched this in 2020. So it's especially nice to have you back again. Well, thank you. All right. So the Fed, what do you expect the FOMC is going to announce this week in terms of rate hikes? And more important, Chris, do you think the Fed is on the right course here? Well, you know, interest rate forecasting is, a, you know, a cottage industry, but like political forecasting and sports forecasting, it has almost no predictive value. I mean, what we know is that the inflation genie is out of the bottle. And in a funny way, it feels new because there's nobody investing today uh, that was still in the business the last time people were losing money in bonds. Uh, but it's not in the common consciousness yet. I mean, it is amazing how much money has already been lost in bonds, and yet you don't really read about it. People still feel they're safe. And so I think the Fed has a tough row in front of them, and uh, whatever they do this coming period, I don't think it'll be the end. And just as one number, Lauren, to file away, you know, the from 2000 to 2020 was a pretty a, a period of fairly low inflation, and yet, even in that period, the purchasing power of a dollar fell to 57 cents. You know, people forget that purchasing power erodes constantly. That rate is accelerating. But it really should be the number one thing that investors think about is how do I maintain and build purchasing power over time? And we'll, t- we'll be talking about that later today when we talk about some of the things you're interested in buying. So I want to stick with the Fed for a moment, though. Fed Chairman Jay Powell warned that tightening monetary policy is going to inflict pain on the economy and the markets. And history shows that that's just what tightening cycles typically do. Ben wrote in the Trader column this weekend, quoting a number of people on Wall Street, that it's not time to buy, even though markets have fallen sharply. Yet, Chris, you told us this morning, as we were getting ready for this call, that your grandfather said you make more money in a bear market, and you wanted to remember those words so you had them framed. Well, yes, it's it's yeah. What he said is, you make most of your money in a bear market. You just don't realize it at the time because it feels lousy. So and explore course, that idea for us. Well, I think really the 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 best example I can give from recent memory or relatively recent memory was Warren Buffett's uh, editorial in uh, the the fall 
of 2008 when he said, you know, buy America, I am. And he bought Burlington Northern. And, uh, and of course, the market dropped another 30% after that. But what he said is, if you wait for the Robins, it's too late if you wait for the Robins to call spring. So trying to buy the bottom is a loser's game. What we sort of say is, if you start with markets down 20%, you know, this is a, a real number. On average, the return over the next decade investing, if you started after the market had dropped 20%, is about 200 basis points per year higher than the average return would be for a 10-year period. So obviously, lower prices increase future returns. And the trouble is when markets go down 20%, people say, oh, well, they could go down 30. Or they could go to, whereas when markets go up 10, nobody is, is realizing that the higher prices reduce future returns. So our view is, you know, the lower prices go, the higher your future returns are. Trying to time the bottom is a loser's game but knowing that starting at a lower price will increase your future return. So that's, that's sort of our mindset in this is focus on qualities like resilience, durability, uh, recognize you're going to own businesses through recessions, through corrections. Uh, and for heaven's sakes, given the risks in the economy, don't, don't own businesses that are fragile or that will get killed if the inflation ends up to be more than transitory, which you know, certainly looks more likely every, uh, with every passing month. That's for sure. So have you been active buyers as the market's been selling off? We have. And I would sort of think of different, those categories. So instead of rotating your portfolio to try to, you know, get whatever part of a cycle you're in, what we do is we try to look for which businesses have the most durable and resilient long-term uh, uh, prospects and yet have sold off a lot because people are worried about the short term. So in other words, we're not trying to buy some deep cyclical company where if, if, if the recession ends up being shallow, we'll rebound uh, sharply. We're trying to look at those qualities of durability, resiliency. So I would say the two areas where we have been buying have been in banks. That's where I think the fear is the greatest. And we can talk about those later. Um, but also I would call what I would call some of the, the durable, the blue chips of tomorrow, these durable blue chip tech companies like Google, uh, where growth investors hate them because the second derivative has slowed down, you know, the, the change in the rate of change nonsense. Our view is those have very, very secure long-term positions and the stocks have come off a lot. Uh, and, uh, and so those are sort of the areas where we see the most opportunities today. So you brought up financials. We might as well stick with that for a minute. And um, tell me what you like about them. The stocks haven't done particularly well. The XLF, which is the Financial Select Sector Spider Fund, is down about 15% this year. It's just narrowly beating the S&P 500. It has notably underperformed over five years. There's been a cloud over the sector. What's going to change that? And what do you like here? Well, this is interesting because, see, I would argue with you and say the sector has significantly outperformed, but the stocks have underperformed. And, and what I mean by that is that the earnings of the financial sector, banks in particular, over the last decade have become a larger and larger percentage of the S&P, and yet their market cap has become a smaller and smaller percentage. So a huge gulf has opened between price and value. And I think the reason is 
all of the investors investing today, or certainly most of them, remember the financial crisis viscerally. And so what they think is whenever there's a whiff of recession, get the hell out of the banks. Uh, there'll be another financial crisis. And really, what we experienced in 2008, you would have to go back to the Depression to find an equivalent in terms of a financial crisis. Every recession from the Depression to the financial crisis it was not a banking crisis. So what happens is you have a mindset of investors that banks are fragile. But when you look at the data, their capital ratios are almost double what they were before the financial crisis. All of the banks, uh, the large banks, certainly the ones that we own, not just survived uh, the financial crisis, but were not even particularly at risk during the financial crisis. I mean, compared to the cities of the world and so on. Uh, um, but most importantly, the Fed publishes its annual stress test every year. And Lauren, think about that stress test. I mean, it forecasts things. It models things like a three and a half percent decline in GDP, 10 percent unemployment, a 40 or 50 percent decline in commercial real estate, a 35 percent decline in residential real estate. I mean, really pretty frightening uh, uh, assumption. Pretty extreme. Pretty extreme. And yet under those scenarios, every single major bank in the country is well capitalized. That's the that's the product of the stress test. If they didn't pass the stress test, they would be saying they couldn't withstand that environment. So here we have uh, a sector that is explicitly prepared for chaos, and yet it's a sector that has whose stocks have so dramatically underperformed, not for just one year, two years, three years, but for five, for ten years, while the earnings of the businesses have grown. So. To put those two thoughts together, and what you have is, in a sense, the cheapest valuation sector in the economy and in the market. So the lowest valuations, and yet in our, uh, from our point of view, the most prepared, the most resilient. And don't forget, on top of it all, most of the banks have suffered real compression of interest rate spreads. So a little higher uh, interest rates tends to be a net positive for their earnings. So. That's to us, in a nutshell, the case for banks. I don't think it's an area where you want to go out on the risk curve. You want to be with the, the best underwriters, the most resilient. Uh, but to us, that has been uh, the, the most attractive area at the market. Now, we don't know what the credit losses will be if we have a recession next year. What we know is they're prepared for it and they're trading at such a low valuation that coming through the other side, I think that people are going to be shocked at how resilient they were. And I think you'll finally maybe even have a decade of multiple expansion after more than a decade of multiple contraction. But why have investors treated them so rudely over the past decade? <laughs> have they well, other things more? What, what's going on? How I think people like to use simple heuristics and they say, oh, if we're going to have a recession, credit losses are going to go up. Don't own the banks. And, uh, because that, that's what would have saved you in the financial crisis. And I think, you know, as we always say, the most important question for investors isn't what's going to happen. It's what is discounted, what is in the price. And these banks are priced, uh, you know, I'm, I'll think of Capital One at book value. I mean, these, these, these banks are priced not only as if there is going to be a significant and dramatic recession, that's fine. Uh, 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 that makes sense that they already have that priced into the business, but they're, they're priced as if they are fragile 
when in fact they are durable and resilient. So the surprises in the economy, in our view, will come elsewhere. The surprises in credit losses will come elsewhere. Uh, and uh, the banks are already discounting, in our view, sort of the worst case or a very bad case scenario. So we like that risk reward pairing. And investors just, you know, they remember the last time uh, and they don't remember uh, all of the times before when, of course, banks proved to be very resilient. That's a good argument. So speaking of speaking of pressure points in the economy, much of last week's sell-off in the market stemmed from a revenue warning from FedEx. Also, the company cut its guidance for future results. So Ben, I want to turn to you now. Do you think FedEx was really signaling deeper trouble with the economy, or as some people say, was the issue more FedEx-specific? Um, I think I, coming down the side of it's more FedEx specific. I know the company uh, came out and said that they, they think there's a global recession coming and, and they may be right, but there's a lot of stuff going on with FedEx um, that it, that is company specific that, um, you know, they're, I mean, they have problems, some problems with their contractors. Um, they have, uh, there's been a real um, downturn in express shipping um, as people I think have gotten more um, comfortable with uh, waiting for uh, a little more patient with waiting for their things to come. Um, I, I do some shipping. Uh, I have to ship some stuff every once in a while. I've been using the post office. Uh, it gets there in three days and it costs a lot less. So I think there's a lot of um, uh, things that are specific to FedEx uh, going on right now. Um, and you talk to, uh, you know, I was talking to Al Root who uh, covers these for Barron's and, you know, he thinks uh, stocks like UPS were actually un unfairly punished um, with, uh, the, with the FedEx problems. It's not to say that there aren't problems in the economy. Um, you know, as Chris was talking about, there are, and we could very well be heading for a recession. Um, but I'm not sure FedEx is kind of this bellwether that it might once have been. That's interesting. It was a pretty violent reaction for <laughs> something that was company specific. And also, you know, I, I was saying to our research team today, it is amazing when you look at the incredible success Amazon has had building out its shipping infrastructure. And for years, the response of FedEx was, please, nobody can build our infrastructure. We can deliver everywhere in the country in 24 hours. It took us 30 years to build this. And of course, the answer was, Amazon doesn't have to build it out everywhere. They can start creaming the best routes, the best, uh, um, uh, you know, the full truckloads, the areas where they have route density and running full. And it wouldn't surprise me to find out in retrospect that that had some impact. FedEx is not a huge Amazon customer, but a lot of Amazon's customers may be FedEx customers. So you think of fulfillment by Amazon and things sort of tapping in. And when you combine that with things like uh, DocuSign and some of the changes from COVID that have allowed for electronic signatures, there's there are a lot of things that could be putting some pressure on there. In addition to, I think Ben is absolutely right at the, at the sort of macro level, but at the micro level, I think between DocuSign and Amazon, you could be having a few other factors that are really secular changes. That's interesting for sure. But you are, um, as you said, a big investor in bank stocks. So I'm wondering when you look at the banks, what can you gauge about the health of the economy from looking at the banks? Well, it's, it's, we just spent, you know, five days visiting with a lot of our banks, you know, the, uh, uh, for bank investors that uh, the fall is always a back to school time because for, uh, my whole career, Lehman Brothers used to host uh, the the bank conference uh, that starts every September right after Labor Day. And now, of course, it's Barclays. Uh, um, but the messages there were fairly uniform, which is 
Credit continues to perform amazingly well. Uh, rising interest rates is inflating interest income. They are all expecting credit losses to go up and are prepared, but they are not seeing it yet. Um, I think the one head fake may be that everybody is so busy looking at residential real estate and the consumer that they're forgetting that most credit cycles tend to alternate. And what I mean by that is when I started, we were in the midst of the SNL crisis, a huge uh, crisis that was all commercial real estate. I don't know if you remember the days of look through office buildings and <laughs> all of that. Residential real estate was fine. Then the next crisis, which was 20 years later, uh, 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 was, of course, entirely residential. Uh, it was, you know, the consumer, subprime, residential. Now, of course, I think people are looking back and saying, oh, my God, we've got to keep our eye on the consumer, keep our eye on residential. And I think where you may end up seeing credit problems is much more likely on the commercial side. Uh, where leverage has built up some commercial real estate. You know, we all know what's going on in offices and back to uh, back to the office versus work from home. So, you know, that's an area where we want to keep our, our, our senses out. But what we would say is uh, the banks are prepared. In other words, there's there we all know a storm is coming. We don't know if it's a class one, a class three or a class five hurricane that is bearing down on the economy. But what we know is the hurricane uh, the, that the banks have been rebuilt after the financial crisis to withstand a class seven. Right. In other words, the stress test takes the financial crisis and says, we want to make sure that the banks are resilient, even if the next one ends up being way worse. So I think that is going to be the head fake. I think you could end up having problems emerge in what I would call the private lending business, high yield, uh, a lot of these syndicated loans but not really in the banking system. I think the banks are enormously well prepared uh, for what the environment likely holds. And that's really what came out of the synthesis of meeting with 20 or so managements over the last week. Chris, do you worry about commercial property REITs um, right now then? Well, it, it, it you know, it, the nature of John Train, who was a great uh, uh, luminary, as you know, in the investment industry, used to say investing is the art of the specific. And uh, I think that's true when you look across companies and stocks, but it's even more true in real estate. You have different asset classes within real estate, within commercial real estate, you know, and then even uh, within a single asset class like office buildings, you have so much uh, diversity of quality, location, tenants, uh, 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 lease terms, lease duration. The best analogy I can give you, Ben, is in the 1980s during the SNL crisis that I mentioned, California commercial real estate was the worst performing uh, part of all of uh, lending. And Wells Fargo and Bank America and a bunch of other California-based lenders all had exposure, but Wells Fargo's losses ended up being a tiny fraction of the losses of their competitors. And it was simply because they underwrote each loan more carefully, uh, they had better quality tenants, they had better lease terms, lower loan to values and so on. I would say the same is true uh, in the REIT world, there's just a vast difference. I'm I'm no expert there, but but uh, but I would say 
you know, when people panic because the story is, okay, commercial real estate is going to be bad. Let's sell all these companies. Usually we start thinking, well, there may be opportunity there because uh, there'll be a big dispersion of practices and portfolios within that sector. So all that said, let's take a look at some of the retail housing data coming out this week. And I'll, Ben, I'll ask you to go quickly through it. We're going to sure. hear about building permits, housing starts, existing home sales, and we'll get earnings from KB Home and Lennar. So let's go through that. Well, yeah, I mean, home builders are feeling lousy. We got uh, the uh, National Association of Home Builders, Wells Fargo Housing Market Index, it's a housing sentiment, home builder sentiment index, and it dropped for a ninth straight month. And they have every right to be feeling miserable because the data is not going to be great. Um, we have building permits, uh, that's expected to fall. Uh, existing home sales, that's expected to fall. Housing starts might be the bright spot. It's expected to rise just a touch, but Morgan Stanley was pointing out that that's only because August was down uh, almost 10% uh, month over month. Um, so it, there's just a lot of, uh, you know, bad news there. We even have a report today that Open Door Technologies is based on some outside data. and Open Door hasn't commented on it yet, but says that they might have lost 42% on homes that it's flipped. So this is just bad stuff going on. Um, but I think, you know, th that's pretty much already known by um, pretty much everyone, right? We, we know that they're, uh, that housing is slowing, that the Fed by uh, hiking rates as quickly as it has has sent mortgage rates higher, and uh, that's caused housing to slow. What's interesting is that you do get earnings from KB Home and Lennar uh, this week, and ahead of those those earnings, um, KeyBank came out and actually upgraded the entire housing sector. Um and they, they basically are saying that, you know, they think that the early sector pain could lead to it recovering earlier than other things, um, even in the face of, of a recession. And it's it, it's an interesting idea, just uh, given how much uh, these stocks have gotten hit. Um, KB Home is down 37% this year. Lennar is down 35%. Both are expected to um, have earnings that are well above uh, previous the previous year. Um, but again, I think investors are looking at that and saying, well, yeah, of course, they had this enormous housing bubble, and now they're going to have to come in, and they're not sure where the earnings are going to be. Wedbush was pointing out that, um, you know, KB Home, um, that, uh, you know, people want to listen to um, just how well how well demand is ho holding up and the impact on the, uh, the margins um, and uh, what kind of incentives they're having to use to get their homes sold. And it's going to be a similar story for, for Lennar. Lennar did get the double upgrade, though, from KeyBank. The thing that I like about KeyBank is that they downgraded uh, the housing stocks at the beginning of the year when it wasn't popular to do that yet. It was a very well-timed downgrade. Um, and so it's interesting to see them get the upgrades now. Worth paying attention to. Chris, what should investors be looking for, for you know, to suss out signs of troubling commercial real estate? Well, I, of course, I think we're going to just see uh, uh, loan loss provisions at all of the banks go up. They're at, you know, shockingly low levels and there have been no loan losses. And the nature of the change in accounting standards that was put in place uh, after the financial crisis for banks is that in a sense, they aren't allowed to put up reserves in advance of any evidence of losses. Uh, and so, you know, in all of our estimates, we assume that credit costs will go up. And to me, the most interesting thing is that the banks are trading, not as if credit costs are gonna go up, which is obvious, but as if there's a calamity 
that is coming out. Uh, and I think that is the huge disconnect that we see. I think, you know, if you think about 30 years, 40 years of, of history, you know, you would have recessions that would hit Texas, housing might get hit, or there was overbuilding in Las Vegas, but California was strong. And, you know, the financial crisis was the first time we had this sort of across the board uh, 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 decline in, in residential. And similarly, in commercial real estate, when you go back to the SNL crisis, it was very targeted primarily in California and Texas was where the big losses were a little bit in New England. Uh, and yet there was no question that the banking system was resilient and what rode right through that. I mean, it was a tremendous buying opportunity, buying companies like Wells back then when they were trading uh, uh, as if they were going to have significant problems. So I think, you know, we will see uh, uh, losses in the commercial real estate sector. We're already seeing vacancies up, leases rolling over, big markdowns. So we expect that to happen. I think the big surprise, Lauren, is going to be how little of those losses are held in the banking sector. I think they're going to turn out to be in pension plans, uh, in some mortgage REITs, other things like that. But, you know, the banking sector, every senior executive at every bank in the country is somebody who survived the credit crisis. They got their battlefield promotions by being the conservative <laughs> ones uh, who weren't taking risks. And do you remember, Lori, I'll give you my favorite analogy for this time. Do you remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life? Yes. You know, think about Mr. Potter. Now, he was the villain in the movie, but if you were an investor, he was the one you wanted to invest with, right? He was so conservative. He was so responsible. Uh, he was the one that would give you an umbrella when it was uh, sunny and ask for it back when it was raining. And when that movie was made, believe it or not, banks traded at a market multiple at 15 times earnings because that caricature was the way investors saw banks. They're boring, conservative, three-piece suit wearing people that pay reliable dividends and don't take any risk. Well, that's the world I see banks coming to in the next decade, that the, the reputation of the banks is going to be they're boring, they're dull. And think about it. People say, well, they're like, they, then they would be like utilities. Sure. Utilities trade at 20 times earnings today. Consumer products companies with very anemic growth uh, uh, trade at 20, 22 times earnings. And here are the banks at nine times, 10 times. Capital One is trading at five times earnings. So I think that is the big disconnect and the opportunity we see. As we say, we would all rather uh, be friends uh, with George Bailey. Uh, but we'd all rather feel much more safer investing with Mr. <laughs> Got it. Do you think investors are worried about new technologies that will obsolete the banks over time? <laughs> well, that, they were a lot more worried a year ago. You know, fintech <laughs> was going to swallow the world a year ago. And of course, all of those stocks are down 80, 90 percent because, of it course, you know, the nature of financial services is, you know, anybody can set up any platform to make loans or to, you know, sell insurance. The hard thing is collecting, right? Anybody can give out money. Getting it back is the is the tricky part of banking. Uh, I think a lot of fintech models uh, were uh, losing money on every customer that it got uh, uh, in some cases because the acquisition costs were so high. And in some cases, it will end up that the collections costs are going to be so high. Um, however, we do not have our head in the sand because 
what we know is that within those fintech platforms, there are going to be companies that are sort of become what Charles Schwab did, right? Schwab started as a single product company, discount brokerage. It got a lot of customers uh, through discount brokerage, but that's not what it is today. Today, it is a respected financial institution that holds enormous amounts of assets for its customers, is well-respected, well-trusted, and so on. So could that be a rocket mortgage? Could it be another company that goes from selling just one product to becoming a trusted online uh, partner, financial partner. So that's the first part of tech is, is there a platform that becomes sort of beloved? The second is the pure disruption question. You know, is there a way uh, to bypass the credit card rails? You know, our answer is everywhere else in the world, uh, companies and countries have bypassed the credit card industry. They have not succeeded in doing it in the U.S., but I certainly think the payment system is, is ripe for some change. But over a long period of time history, it's, uh, Lauren, it's sort of amazing to think that, you know, when I started, the money market fund had been invented. That was the most disruptive technology you could imagine, because all of a sudden you didn't need a bank to have a safe deposit earning a higher interest rate. Then the asset-backed security and the mortgage-backed security were invented, you know, over at Solomon Brothers and so on. So all of a sudden, all the loans, you didn't need a bank to make loans and generate assets. The high-yield market, ATMs, uh, the pure-play credit card companies that just use data science and no branches. So a huge amount of disruption, innovation, dislocation has been incorporated into the banking system. And that's often aided and abetted by regulation. Countries hate to lose control of their financial sector. So in a funny way, even though bank investors say they hate all the regulation, bank executives say, oh, we're being smothered by regulation, uh, in some ways it also creates one hell of a moat. And uh, so we watch it closely. We watch the blockchain technology. We, uh, uh, For different parts of the system, it can uh, uh, dislocate. But in a way, the, the demise of fintech in this crash has been a real positive because a lot of uh, capital that didn't need to earn any return that was free uh, can you know turn good businesses bad uh, by just throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall until something manages to stick. So I think we're in a more rational environment now. I think the risk is lower. And I think you may even see some banks acquiring some fintech companies in the next few months. Very interesting. Good point. So I want to close with a couple of listener questions, although I wish we had a lot more time to talk about the banks. But Hal has a question. He wants to know whether you would be positive on the financial crisis poster child Citigroup, as he called it. <laughs> That's the one, you know, I, what I can tell you is, you know, they always say uh, praise by, by, by name, criticized by category. So if I was to praise by name, I'd look at our portfolio and I'd say, you know, our largest bank holdings are things like Capital One, uh, we own a lot of Wells Fargo because we think it's a fairly vanilla banking model that, you know, was mismanaged for so long and is so cheap. It has very high expenses. So it can generate a lot of earnings growth by just gradually, you know, to put it as a colorful colleague of mine put it, by just sucking a little less. <laughs> and so that's not a bad place to start. If you just go from terrible to not so bad to maybe they're sort of average, you'll make a lot of money because you'll have both the earnings growth from getting their house in order, but you'll also have some multiple expansion from 
the cheapest in the group to maybe something average. City is a harder one for us just because of the complexity of their business model. Uh, so we just, I, you know, it's one where I just, all I can say is that we haven't owned it. We've looked at it a lot over the years and, you know, to rather than have anybody think that that's a condemnation. We also didn't own Bank of America for a long time, and it was one of the best performing bank stocks of the last decade. So by not owning it doesn't mean that its prospects are bad. It's just been that I felt it was a little harder for me to understand than some of the ones that we do own, like U.S. Bank Corp, Wells Fargo, and Capital One. That's a fair answer, and I'm glad Hal asked the question. So we have a question from Thomas, and I'm going to pose it to both of you. How will we know when we're actually in a recession? Some people would say we're already in a recession. Ben, what do you think? Um, well, I mean, we're going to hear from the NBER uh, long after it's already started, so that's not much help. I mean, I, I think in some ways you just have to to look at what's what's going on around you and look at the uh, some of the uh, the data that is, I guess, as close to. Um, uh, current as possible. So like jobless claims, um, you know, if, if they start rising a lot, if you start seeing people around you getting uh, laid off, there's probably a decent chance we're in a recession. So it's it's, it's those kind of things more than anything. Um, I don't think we're in one yet, but uh, I know there are people out there that would disagree with me. Well, and I'm so sorry we didn't, don't, I don't have the exhibit in front of me. There was, but I looked last week uh, at a study that showed that even uh, even though uh, the ability of the, the the National Bureau or the IMF on a global basis to predict recessions is just shockingly low. They tend to be a lagging indicator. Uh, they tell you you're in a recession after everybody has known it for six months. Yep. <laughs> even if you were to invest with the perfect knowledge a year before a recession came, and so you skipped the recession as an investor, and then you got in uh, when the, the National Bureau blew the all clear and said, we're officially out of a recession. I think you ended up lagging the market versus a buy and hold strategy by something like 100 or 200 basis points per year. I, I, I don't have the study in front of me, but it's just one of these reminders that, uh, you know, to quote the wonderful Peter Lynch, that, you know, more money has been lost preparing for and trying to avoid recessions than in recessions. Right. And that is absolutely the case. And clearly the market is already discounting that. So uh, getting out now when, when the, they finally come out and say, oh, it turns out we were in a recession and waiting until they finally say we're all clear. The market is, as my father used to like to say, a barometer, not a thermometer. It's trying to tell you something about the future, uh, 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 not what it is now. And that's that's the discounting mechanism we started with. Right. And Chris, I would even say that when the NBER comes out and says, hey, it's a recession, it's actually been a pretty decent time to buy. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm so glad we're having this conversation. Glad you're reminding readers of that, listeners of that. So another question concerns utilities. I'm not sure which of you can take this, but Fred says utilities seem to have been increasing dividend returns as inflation rises. And he wonders, will those dividend increases remain high? when inflation finally decreases. Hmm. Well, I'll, I'll take a whack at this by saying that, you know, I think one of the reason bank stocks will perform well over the next decade is they're going to have a wonderful record of growing dividends per share. 
Uh, I think, you know, because what they really have is a combination of they've had growing dividends, but they've also had falling share counts and those compound on each other. And I think they are going to become the new dividend darlings of the next decade. Uh, utilities, on the other hand, what I would say is the utility investors uh, today have not experienced a long environment of rising costs. Uh, uh, they've really had 20 or 30 years of falling costs and managing a regulated business when your costs are falling and therefore you don't have to pass along price or rate increases tends to be an easier hand than when you're going to the regulators and saying, please let us raise prices, let us raise prices. Um, so for example, in, if you think about something like auto insurance, uh, you know, auto insurance is obviously having big increases in costs. But in many states like California, they have to go and ask the commissioner for permission to raise rates. And the commissioner of insurance in California is elected, so is perfectly willing to behave in a very irresponsible way and slow roll those rate increases. I can see something happening uh, in uh, utilities like that over time. And so, you know, I'm, I'm always baffled by why utilities with high payout ratios uh, trade at the multiples they do uh, relative to things like banks, where I think the dividend outlook for banks over a long period of time is going to be much more favorable. All right. I think we're going to have to end it there today, which I regret, but time's up. Chris, I want to thank you so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Ben, I thank you as well. Oh, Lord, it's so great. I, I'm so honored. I had realized I was your, your first guest. And I'll, I'll, I'll come on anytime you want. I'm so, so grateful back. for the job Bye. you do at Barron's. And you guys are a light of rationality in a, in a, uh, uh, a world of you know, financial tweets. Uh, so it's, it's a, the editorial <laughs> function is so valuable today and maybe more than ever. Well, we didn't pay him to say that, but we thank you. <laughs> All right. We, we thank our listeners, too, for tuning in. Thanks for your good questions for both. And tomorrow, come back because the subject is Ethereum's big gamble. The Ethereum network is going through a major upgrade that could turn it into the Internet of Crypto. And my colleague, Baron, Darren Fonda, a managing editor at Barron's, will talk with Sean Farrell, head of digital assets at Fundstrat Global Advisors, They'll be talking about what's ahead for Ethereum and for crypto. Thanks again, everybody, for joining us today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.